This is an AMI podcast. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Vision research is intriguing, not just because many of us are either visually impaired ourselves or know someone who is, but mostly because the human eye is as complicated as it is fascinating. Advancing vision research opens possibilities for cures or treatments for eye conditions for people who desire them. It also paves the way towards effective prevention and diagnosis. We have seen exciting developments in gene therapy and stem cell research in the last decade and innovations in technology. But nationally, there remain challenges in accessing latest research and developments in vision care and ensuring Canadians can participate in clinical trials and procedures. Today we discuss the state of vision research in Canada. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to the Pulse on AMI Audio. My name is Jyothi Gupta. Over the next 4 episodes on the program, we'll take a look at the contents of the Canadian Vision 2020 summit that took place in Ottawa in mid-February. You might have heard our interview with Doug Earl, the president and CEO of Fighting Blindness Canada. Over that interview, we talked about the conference and why it was so important to make use of the symbolic year 2020 to examine the state of vision research and healthcare in Canada. The conference really brought together specialists and people with lived experience of vision loss from coast to coast. There must have been hundreds of people in the room with one objective: to improve the lived experience of vision care, to improve access to treatments and cures, and to ensure early and effective diagnosis. The day was divided in three panels. The panels looked at various topics in vision healthcare, and we're going to examine some of the panels in some detail over the next 4 episodes. The first panel explored the policy draft paper for vision research. It was a discussion of key advancements and hurdles in the vision research field and what they mean for Canadians living with vision loss. Panelists theorized what the next years and decades have in store for this exciting field as it continues to advance. Today on the show, we'll hear a couple of interviews I did with two panelists from the first panel that took place at Vision 2020. We'll hear from Dr. Catherine Silfides, a senior scientist for the neuroscience program at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute. She is also an associate professor at the University of Ottawa. But first, here is my interview with Michel Caillouet, a research unit director for the Montreal Clinical Research Institute. Michel is also a professor at the University of Montreal and McGill University. Michelle, welcome to the Pulse, or I should say, welcome back, as you have been on the program before. It's nice to be able to talk to you. Thanks for having me. So, Michelle, tell us a little bit about your involvement with Fighting Blindness Canada. Well, I've been uh, with Fighting Blindness Canada for many, many years. Uh, since 2014, I'm a chair of the Scientific Advisory Board, who is basically the uh, committee that looks at all the projects submitted to uh, FBC and evaluate their potential impact mm-hmm. uh, and and scientific merit. Uh, we know that there is a a shortage of funding to do this important work. What are some of the criteria that you're looking at when you make decisions about which projects to fund and which ones not to fund? 
Each funding organization have has their own specific criteria, but uh, at FBC, we look at many different things. Uh, one is the, the scientific quality of the project. Is it sound? Is the methodology properly described and appropriate for the work to be carried out? Is it an exciting question and area of research? We also look at potential impact of the work. Is it something that will be impactful in the medium or long term? Uh, even if it's long term, it doesn't matter as long as it's judged to be a potentially impactful project. That's uh, definitely big bonus points. We also look at the quality of the uh, of the team that is proposing the, the research because Scientists are constantly evaluated uh, in terms of their production and how, mu how much research they actually generate and whether this research had an impact in the past. So uh, whatever these, this team of scientists did in the past is important and, and sometimes tell us what uh, the future is going to be like for them. And so the quality of the team is another very important uh, criteria that we look at. Um, you know, you're based out of Montreal, and I think it, uh, the question begs to be asked, what is funding like in Quebec for vision research? Is it better, worse, or just as the uh, same as the rest of the country? I would say it's slightly better. What we have in Quebec is the uh, uh, Vision Health Research Network, which is a provincial network funded by the uh, uh, Fonds de Recherche Santé du Québec, mm -hmm. uh, which is a health research uh, funding organization in Quebec, funding specifically this network uh, that is dedicated to vision research. So we have access to slightly more uh, potential source of funding than, uh, uh, than the rest of Canada in that sense. Um, the research network funds, uh, for example, uh, pilot projects. It doesn't substitute to the uh, federal funding agency, but it actually provides a, a complement to this, to this funding uh, that we can get at the federal level. Uh, for example, by providing access to infrastructure such as databases, tissue banks, and so on, and also access to scholarships for students because a lot of our work in an academic lab is done by graduate students, so mm -hmm. students at the doctoral or master level or postdoctoral fellow who come to specialize in a specific area of research, uh, and they need to, to be paid to do their work. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so this uh, access to these scholarships is super important for them, uh, and we try to, to fund the very best uh, uh, students and postdoc via the, the Vision Network. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, it is, I would say, slightly better in that sense. It's also an important component of the Vision Network is to bring people together. And I think even though this is not directly funding, it's also very important in terms of increasing capacity in research because each year the Vision Health Research Network in Quebec brings together all the vision scientists into a, an annual research day. We are over 200 people uh, in uh, presenting their work uh, through small short talks or via uh, poster presentations. And so people come and exchange and, and, and sometimes exchange ideas and this can develop into collaborations. So this really creates a, an environment that is more uh, conductive to collaborations and setting up new projects mm -hmm. and new ideas. So it's an important mission of the network as well, not only funding. 
Mm. And of course, on the point about collaboration, I think we are as good as our collaborators. So how effectively is the network able to partner not just with other institutes nationally, but also internationally? Do you benefit from some of those partnerships? Yes, absolutely. So this is, uh, this is well, I became a director of Division Health Research Network uh, last year, and this was one of my priority was to develop these partnerships. So one of the partnerships we've established recently is with Fighting Blindness Canada, mm. We want to partner in funding the patient registry, which provides uh, access to uh, clinical and genetic data uh, of people registered uh, in, that, in that patient registry so that uh, scientists and researchers can have access to, uh, to that data and sometimes use it in their research protocols and also perhaps establish some different funding programs. We also have partnerships internationally with, uh, that we just started now doing work with a panel of international uh, scientific advisory boards. So we've recruited six internationally recognized experts in vision research in different areas of vision research. Mm-hmm. So there's people coming from uh, France, England, the USA, and so on. Uh, and, and those people bring an international perspective on the vision network, which is super important, obviously. And so we are hoping to use these connections now to build additional partnerships with other funding organizations around the world uh, that will hopefully provide even more, increase even more the research capacity in Quebec and in Canada. Now, I know that researchers in Canada and Quebec have done a lot with limited funding, but what does funding for uh, vision research look like in some of these other countries? You mentioned France and England and the United States. Are things better or worse? Yeah, so it, it depends where you look, mm. but there's definitely uh, better countries around there. Uh, one example, perhaps the most obvious one, is our uh, neighbor in the south, the United States. Um, they have uh, access to funding through the National Eye Institute. So this is a federal agency that provides uh, research funding uh, specifically for eye and vision research. Mm-hmm. We don't have this type of institute in Canada. Then We have the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. That is the main funding agency uh, for biomedical research in Canada. And the Canadian Institute of Health Research is divided into multiple different institutes, but there's no uh, vision institute or eye institute through, the, through this network. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it would be a very good idea to develop this kind of, of initiative in Canada and because vision research is super important considering mm-hmm. uh, the aging population. Uh, uh, vision loss is going to become uh, likely an epidemic in years to come with mm-hmm. the aging population. So we must invest in vision research and try to uh, uh, bring more of those new innovative uh, uh, research results that will lead to treatment in in coming years. Mm. Um, And so having um, a a dedicated institute for vision research would be one idea, Mm. uh, like they have in the United States. So they've recognized the importance of vision research by creating this this National Eye Institute. So I um, I think it would be an important thing to do in Canada as well. I remember this morning when you said that 
vision impairments were becoming an epidemic, I sat up and took notice. You know, for me, uh, I'm visually impaired. It's just my life. But I'd never really thought about the scale of it, if you really stop to think about it. Uh, the other piece that I wanted to talk about in relation to that point is what gets researched. So we know that there have been significant advances in gene therapy and stem cell research. But I think most people would argue there's a relationship between nature and nurture. So are we looking at funding multidisciplinary research? that combines environmental factors with genetic research? Oh, absolutely. We are looking to fund anything, uh, as I said, (laughs) as long as it's excellent and it's potentially impactful coming from an excellent team, it's eligible for funding. I mean, uh, I think uh, the CIHR, the Canadian Institute of Health Research, or Fighting Blindness Canada, we have the same sort of criteria for excellence. We just go for excellence. As long as the research is excellent, it is being funded. Now, often the reason that projects are not getting funded uh, is because there's just not enough money to fund everything that should be funded mm-hmm. or that deserves to be funded. So these type of projects that you're talking about, there are definitely research out there looking at the combination of genetics with environmental factors. Um, and it, Those projects exist. Uh, they may not be uh, all funded because of lack of funding, but mm-hmm. uh, certainly important. Absolutely. I'm going to put a, a controversial question to you. Uh, so in my, in my other life, I work in housing, and one of the arguments we often make to government and our funders is if you just built the housing and you put people in stable housing, it is cheaper for you overall if you, rather than having people become homeless, end up in shelters, and go to prison. And the reason I bring up this analogy is does the same hold true for vision research as well? If we were to actually look at preventing vision impairment, would it ultimately result in savings to the government rather than trying to invest in rehabilitation and mitigating vision loss once there's already an onset? Uh, I, I don't think it's uh, controversial at all. I think it's, <laughs> it's absolutely right. Uh, if we had a treatment for vision loss if, or for all of these different diseases that cause vision loss, we wouldn't have to invest in all these rehab and all these social uh, programs to support uh, people living with, uh, with vision impairment. So, yeah, definitely. But uh, in the meantime, we need to support these social programs, obviously, because mm-hmm. uh, it's not tomorrow that we're going to have the solution. But it is, uh, it's an interesting idea, yeah. Absolutely. And technology has come such a long way and research has come such a long way. Michelle, thank you very much for being on The Pulse again. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much for having me. That was my interview with Michelle Cayuet, the Research Unit Director for the Montreal Clinical Research Institute. Michelle is also a professor at the University of Montreal and McGill University. Our next guest is Dr. Catherine Silfidis, who is a senior scientist for the neuroscience program at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute. She is also an associate professor at the University of Ottawa. Kathy, welcome to The Pulse. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Kathy, you were part of a panel this morning that looked at the state of vision research in Canada, but you stuck yes. around for the rest of the day. So mm-hmm. what does an event like this bring to you as a scientist and as a researcher? I think it's very important for those of us that, you know, spend our whole lives in the lab to interact with people that are living with vision loss so that 
we can better understand what some of the challenges are. And it's also very inspiring for us because it makes us realize um, what we are working towards and how important it is that we make sure that we try to advance our research as quickly as possible because there are people who are relying on us to do that work. Mm -hmm. And forgive me for asking you such a broad question, but we started the morning on a very positive note where our keynote speaker talked about a situation where her mother uh, and her grandmother had very different experiences with AMD or age-related macular degeneration. Mm -hmm. Her mother has experienced practically no vision loss because of the advancements in research. So it's the broad question that I want to ask you, how far have we come in terms of vision research? What are some of the exciting new developments that you're uh, here to talk about? So um, I think we have made tremendous progress since the first gene was identified in, I believe it was 1990. Uh, we identified the first mutation that causes retinal disease. Mm -hmm. And in the last 30 years, uh, we have gotten to a place where we've had the first successful gene therapy to basically treat a form of blindness. The advances that we've made, particularly over the last 10 years, are very exciting. And I think that the field of vision research over the next 10 years is going to be equally, if not more, exciting because the progress that we've made in research seems to be expanding exponentially. And mm -hmm. I think that uh, we will make great strides, both in the area of gene therapy, as well as stem cell therapy, and many of the assistive technologies that are helping people that are living with blindness. Let's talk a little bit about each of those. So you mentioned okay. gene therapies, mm -hmm. and one of the therapies we talked about this morning was a Luxterna. For yes. those of us who aren't familiar, what is that? So Luxterna is a gene therapy to treat a form of Leber's congenital amaurosis. And so that is a childhood disease, um, progressive in many of the patients. The, the patients that are being treated with Luxterna are a specific proportion of patients with Leber's congenital amaurosis. In other words, Luxterna is not going to be a gene therapy that's going to be effective for all LCA patients. It mm -hmm. is only available for 5% of the patients that um, have uh, Leber's congenital amaurosis, that 5% that carry mutations within a very specific gene called RPE65. Mm -hmm. So in those patients, the gene therapy involves an injection into the eye um, in right sort of underneath the photoreceptor to try and deliver a working copy of the gene that these patients do not carry. So they, they carry two mutations in the gene that, um, that is important for the visual process. Mm -hmm. And so just replacing those mutant copies with a working copy of the gene allows them to regain function. And so before where they had no vision whatsoever, now they have regained some vision. They can maneuver their way around obstacle courses. Depending on how early they're treated, um, it can have tremendous impact mm -hmm. on their vision. This is such an astonishing development when you think about uh, the clinical applications and the impact this will have on ordinary people and their ability to lead their lives. But we heard that the clinical trials took place almost eight years ago. Is this a treatment that's readily available in Canada? So the initial clinical trials, when a therapy is being tested, it's only tested in a handful of patients mm -hmm. to make sure that 
the therapy is safe. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing that they test. And then it's expanded to test more patients to make sure that it is um, not only safe, but it's effective. Mm -hmm. And so so it is a long process between the time that they start a clinical trial, a phase one trial, and the time that it actually becomes available to patients Mm -hmm. um, more generally. So Luxterna, um, it has taken eight years, but in that time, it has gone from being just an experimental treatment that was tested in a handful of patients to now it is available to anyone who carries that mutation and wants that treatment. Mm -hmm. So it's been approved by the FDA for use in all patients. Mm -hmm. It is not yet approved by Health Canada for use in patients here in Canada, but the application is in and so approval should be coming soon. Having said that, whether all patients that have that carry this mutation will be able to get this therapy still remains to be seen mm-hmm. because it is an expensive therapy. It is a therapy that is, especially in the initial phases, will not be covered by the Canadian healthcare system. Mm-hmm. So patients will have to rely on um, their insurance um, in order to cover the treatment. Mm. And it's sort of dovetailing into that uh, a bigger conversation about access to healthcare, which is a whole other panel. Absolutely. But, you know, let's return to the research question more generally. It sounds like the Luxterna story is all things considered a good news story, but what are some of the challenges faced by researchers in Canada, particularly those who are doing vision research? Right. So, so um, Luxerna is definitely a good news story. Um, the, the major challenges um, that we still face are challenges of funding. Um, and so even though we may have developed something which in the lab we see is effective, by the time that particular therapy ends up making its way into the clinic, it's a very, very long process. Mm. And a lot of that process is governed by the availability of funds. Mm-hmm. So as scientists, we are constantly applying for grants in order to try and support our research and in order to advance our research As we mentioned this morning in the panel, some of the the challenges are that there are not specific agencies, aside from uh, Fighting Blindness Canada, there aren't specific agencies that are dedicated to funding vision research. Mm -hmm. And even the major granting agency in Canada, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, there isn't a specific place where all of the grants that have to do with vision can find a home. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we apply to different areas of expertise. Sometimes we apply to a neuroscience panel, sometimes to a genetics panel. And, and the expert- you don't know if they have the expertise exactly. to make it happen. Yeah, Exactly. And so because the expertise is varied in all those panels, you're never quite sure that they will really understand the implications and the tremendous applications of your research. So what do we need to do to streamline the process? Well, I think we need to... Um, we need to have more conversations with governments. We need to um, make them realize just how important vision loss is. And, and ultimately, in order to get more resources into um, funding research for vision loss, we have to make them aware just how much vision loss is costing Canada, not only from a social context, but also from an economic standpoint. Mm-hmm. And so, unfortunately, our politicians are often guided by dollars. Um, and so we need to really sort of stress the point that by investing in research in the long run, they are investing in the economy of Canada and in saving healthcare dollars mm-hmm. um, that now are substantial for the treatment of vision loss. 
Let me play devil's advocate. I mean, mm -hmm. you make a strong case, but what do you want us to fund with these research dollars? Do you want us to fund uh, research that looks at eye conditions and maladies for an aging population? Do you want us to instead fund genetically inherited eye diseases so we can catch them earlier? Perhaps we just want to look at funding research that makes diagnoses quicker and easier so that more Canadians have access to a basic eye exam. So those research dollars are finite. Where do we put those dollars? Yeah. Yeah, that's an excellent question, and unfortunately, we need to put those research dollars in all of those areas that you've now mentioned. And you're right, they are finite. Um, there is a finite amount, but um, I can't really tell you that one area is more important than the other. They will all have tremendous impact. And so even if we can increase the amount of funding that we have by a small amount, that will still have a great impact on every single one of those areas. Kathy, you're a professor, so I'm going to put an academic question to you. As mm -hmm. a researcher, you know that there's a, an, an ethical approvals process. So when we talk about genetic research, I think people sometimes get excited about the possibilities and the potentials. But what are some of the ethical considerations that we need to also be thinking about? Uh, you know, one of the, the areas that, that is very important is the privacy issue. And so genetic testing, uh, for, for patients that go in for genetic testing, they need to be assured that that information is going to be protected. That um, if, you know, their genetics show that they have a susceptibility to a specific gene or to a uh, specific condition that that's not going to be held against them at any point. So we need to have very, very strong regulations that prevent discrimination based on that genetic information. And, and I think if, that's, if patients are comfortable that that's the case, then they're more likely to go in for that testing in order to identify the potential mutations that are causing their disease so that they can be better candidates for treatments. Well, just before I let you go, I want to wrap it up by going back to the very beginning. And you talked about the importance of this event and hearing from people with lived experience of vision loss. When you come to an event like this, do you think about research uh, less in terms of acting upon a subject, but more in terms of involving those subjects in the final outcome? Absolutely. And I think that involvement is key. And so when we're working in the lab, we're pri primarily working with animal models. And these are not the kinds of things that we, we really think think about. But definitely, um, as we uh, advance our research and we're starting to think about applications in patients, we have to involve those patients at every step of the way. They need to be involved in determining how the clinical trials are going to be carried out, what, what resources they need, what kind of information they need in order to be comfortable with those trials. So they need to be involved in every aspect through the researchers, through their doctors, through agencies such as the FBC um, that can um, advocate on their behalf. Um, and so patients are critical to every step of the way. Well, thank you very much for being a part of our conversation on The Pulse. It's been really great getting to talk to you, Kathy. Thank it, you so much. It was my pleasure. That was Dr. Catherine Silfidis, a senior scientist for the neuroscience program at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute. She is also an associate professor at the University of Ottawa. That wraps up day one of our four-day coverage of the Canadian Vision 2020 Summit. If you missed any of our conversation and you'd like to go back and have a listen, this show is available on your favorite podcast platforms. I hope you'll also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse to hear some of my thoughts and comments about the conference and some of the speakers. This was a truly illuminating opportunity for me. I have to say, as someone who lives with vision loss, it was intriguing to be in a room full of such interesting and amazing people. It's not often that people who work in such different fields come together to tackle solutions and find a way forward. 
2020 is a symbolic year for people who live with vision loss. It represents an optimal visual acuity. So whether we're talking about treatments or cures or prevention, we're also having a broader conversation about what it means to live with vision loss. Now, over the next three episodes, we'll plumb some of the other panels and talk about some of the other discussions that took place. On tomorrow's episode, we're really going to try and straddle a few issues and talk about how research and data collection ties in with public policy. So I hope you'll join us for that conversation. And we'll hear from other panelists and other interviews because we gathered a lot of great content for you over the course of that conference. I'd like to thank our guests today, Dr. Michelle Cayuet, Dr. Catherine Selfidis, and The Pulse is produced by Enrica Delanerol, Sam Robinson, and the manager for AMI Audio is Andy Frank. But most of all, thank you for listening to the program. We'd love to get your feedback. You can find us on Twitter at AMI Audio and use the hashtag PulseAMI. Until next time, this has been The Pulse on AMI-audio. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.